Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, it's been a busy, busy morning in the Fed repo market. Uh, lots of uh, uncertainty. Let's get some certainty around what is going on. We welcome our next guest, Ira Jersey, uh, Chief uh, Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, thanks so much for joining us. And just give us a sense of what is going on in the federal repo market and why it's important. Yeah, so so basically the repurchase agreement market is really the plumbing that makes the entire financial system work, um, where uh, anyone who buys a treasury bond can potentially fund those transactions through the repo market. But um, but And sometimes the repo markets get tight, which means that it's hard to, um, to basically fund your treasury positions. Now, usually that happens at the end of quarters or the end of, end of the year when banks and dealers have to contract their balance sheet. But um, the last two days, you've just seen repo rates spike to you know seven, eight, nine percent. Uh, in some cases, there's been trades up that high. So the Fed actually did the first repo operation that they've done in 12 years this morning because they're worried about repo rates being so high and it being very hard to fund the treasury uh, uh, treasury holdings. So why would they do this now? Why would they try to arrange a test before they knew they could conduct the test? Because we've seen uh, headlines in quick succession this morning. They're going to conduct a repo uh, test. They're not going to because there's a problem. No, now they will. This does not give confidence to the market. Well, I, I think that they, they, they've been doing small-scale tests um, periodically almost every month, um, but those small-scale tests are a little bit different than when you're talking about doing a $75 billion operation as opposed to you know, a couple of hundred million. So, um, so, so, so I think it, it may not have been like, you know, we'll find out over time. I, I suspect it might not have been technical necessarily on the Fed's end, but more technical on the dealer end because you know, some dealers, you know, we haven't done these operations in any kind of size for, for for a long period of time. So, so once those were out of the way, they did do the operation. It just closed a couple of minutes ago, and uh, they did $53 billion of, uh, of, of repo with dealers. And, uh, you know, that was less than what they thought maybe they had to. So, so it seems like we're right at this cusp of what Chairman Powell calls the steep part of the demand curve for reserves and, and for bank balance sheets. And because it, because if, 
if really you know the, the interest rates are so high, like seven eight percent, and you only need forty billion dollars to kind of alleviate that, then you're kind of where reserves need to be. So one of the things I think that this could mean is that when as the Fed meets the next two days and we get the announcement tomorrow, that the Fed could talk about doing a full allotment um, a repo facility. I've talked about it with you guys before, and I I don't know why the Fed's dragging their feet, but really now I think it just shows that it would be good for them to have a standing facility and instead of having to do these you know, overnight operations again and again like they did this morning. So Ira, given the sense that this timing was unusual, i.e. in the middle of the month, does this mm-hmm. suggest that maybe the Fed is losing control a little bit of rates? Well, that's what some people are saying. And I, I think the answer is no. I think there was, there was some unusual things. So we just put out a piece actually about 20 minutes ago talking about just this thing. One is that normally during mid-September, you get uh, very high tax receipts. And what, that, what happens is, is that those tax receipts end up on the Fed's balance sheet and bank reserves fall. So that would make uh, funding markets tighter, which is what you'd expect. But normally during that same period of time, treasury bill supply goes down because September is usually a surplus month. So the, the budget deficit is actually neg- is, is negative. The treasury takes in more cash than, than, uh, than they expend. So, um, so, so, T-bill balances go down. This time, though, thanks to the debt ceiling, T-bill balances continue to go up. So the amount of T-bills outstanding is rising at the same time you have less reserves in the system. So there's kind of this indigestion that's going on. And, and it'll be relieved, I think, in a couple of days. But it, it's very worrying that we're at this point where, you know, basically 40 or $50 billion means, you know, 4 5 6% on interest rates in the funding market. So that's something that the Fed needs to really worry about. So I think the Fed at this point needs to be the lender of first resort as opposed to the lender of last resort for for funding markets. So just to sort of take this from a 10,000 foot level to sort of emphasize the importance of these funding markets. I mean, you said that this is really the plumbing of the financial system. What could be the consequence if these sort of kinks weren't worked out and these high high spikes in, in rates and overnight rates persist? Well, it means that you wind up with a with a funding crisis. I mean, you're talking about a Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers kind of situation is the worst case scenario. Um, How so, so? Extrapolate out. What what happens? Well, if you so what happens is because because if you have a balance sheet, let's say you have a balance sheet of of a hundred billion dollars, and you're funding that with overnight repo, then if the next day you can't fund because you know no one's willing to lend you money um, at a at any kind of price that makes any sense, then and ultimately, you either default or you have to sell all of those securities. So the price of those securities would go down very quickly and very significantly. And that's, you know, that, that's how financial crisis starts: is that a financial institution can't fund itself. And um, so that's the reason why during the crisis, the Federal Reserve had to come up with all these facilities to allow fi- uh, different kinds of financial entities to fund themselves. So th- this is this is a worry. I don't think it's this is anywhere near, you know, 2007, 2008 kind of problems yet. But at the same time, you know, this is the kind of, you know, foreshadowing and canary that needs to be worked out to ensure that you can f- get funding at least for good assets, right? Because you're talking about in here, we're talking about treasury collateral, right? Yeah. We're not talking about corporates or we're not talking about loans and risky assets. We're talking about treasuries. And if you can't fund treasuries, you're not going to be able to fund anything else either. Ira Jersey with the interview of the day. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence.
U.S. home builder sentiment rises to an 11th month high as sales gain. The question is, is that sentiment warranted? We welcome our next guest, Doug Duncan, a Fannie Mae Senior Vice President and Chief Economist. So, Doug, U.S. home builders feeling pretty good about the housing market. Should they be? Uh, yeah, they are, uh, and they should be. Yeah, rates are down, and uh, in our surveys of consumers, consumers' uh, attitude about housing is up. So those two things are going to meet, and at the margin, uh, you'll see some more homes built and sold uh, through the through the builder world. The, that decline in rates uh, at the if you're uh, looking at getting a mortgage to buy the house that that builder is building, then a decline in rates means the monthly payment falls. So there's a few more people that can qualify for that at the margin. But the bigger issue here is still affordability, right? And this is the reason why we've seen this just slow down in in, in the housing market. And I want you to sort of clarify for me the obstacles for home builders building uh, housing for this sort of middle or lower entry level tier of home buyers. Yeah, typically the first time home buyer is buying an existing home that someone else is selling and then moving up to a new home they're buying from a builder. So the builders traditionally have built for the move up buyer. It's been hard for them to move to the entry level, which is where the demand is. And the problem is that boomers are not moving. And nor are the Gen Xers moving, and that's where the existing home supply comes from. That supply is at 30-year lows, and it's not the sweet spot for builders to build to. So you still have a problem at the end at the entry level. So where are so are the Gen Xers and Millennials? Are they buying homes if there's supply? They are okay. absolutely. They're driving the demand curve that started in about 2015. We actually track people as they age, as opposed to going in and looking in the census data at 30 year olds today versus uh, five years ago. We actually watched the 26-year-old to turn to 27 to 28. 2015, the driver of the demand curve became that younger uh, age group, and that they've been building. So there were still probably there was concerns that they would just stay in their parents' basement, but that not not happening. It's like every it's like every other generation. Our surveys of them starting in June of 2010, 90% plus said they eventually want to own a home. There is one difference between them and previous generations. If you ask them to rank home ownership against, say, five or six other things. Ten years ago, it would have ranked probably third. Today, it might rank sixth. So asked in isolation, would you eventually want to own a home? 90% will say yes. But if you ask compared to doing things that are uh, enriching or fun or things like that, Take, puts the housing in a little bit different position for this age group. Can you can you speak a little bit about the shift from rural areas or suburban areas to urban areas? Because for a while, everyone was talking about how this was uh, the move that was unstoppable and that younger people flooding into the cities, uh, foregoing extra space for an apartment in a central location. Uh, but recently, there have been a number of reports about sort of a reversal of that. How, how much traction is that gaining? That, that's true. If you go back to the original stages of this expansions were coming out of the recession this was the most urban core centric job growth of any post-world war ii expansion so part of the stories about the millennials not wanting to buy a house had actually to do where they were where they could get a job and we tried making loans to people that didn't have jobs and it didn't work out that well so they got that right so they said and they told us in the surveys the first thing we have to have is a job then we're going to want it to have a growing income. Then we're going to get a credit in shape. Then maybe we'll this get married. This is radical, of course. Absolutely. All new thinking. Uh, so uh, so th- they were being very rational. 
But once they had the job, the question was, could they afford a house in that area? And in the urban core, you can't build single-family detached affordable houses. What's happened since then is the geography of job growth has spread out across the country into areas where the price of land and the availability of labor and other materials is much more affordable. That's what opened the door for the millennials to start driving the demand curve in, in the 2015 time period. How are some of the younger demos dealing with the student debt? We know this is an increasingly uh, big issue for younger demographics, and is that impacting their ability to buy a home and get it is, credit. It is a challenge, and particularly so for those people who took on student debt but did not get the terminal degree. Because the expectation is with the terminal degree, you will have a higher growth income path, which will both defease that student debt, but also then get you into, into home ownership. If you didn't get the degree, those folks actually have a lower first-time homeownership rate than people who have only a high school education. A little bit of the sub-story there is there's a bunch of people that went into the military and got training in the military, didn't go to college and take on student debt, they're back in the civilian world in jobs mm -hmm. that make sense. So just uh, give us an overview, please, uh, of where we're seeing the fastest housing price growth and where we're seeing uh, potentially the biggest declines in the United States. An, an easy way to look at that is to take the Case-Shiller 20 uh, metro area index. And if you do that and divide each market by high, medium, and low price houses, and then look at the pace of price change in each of those brackets in every market of those 20, the bottom tier is appreciating fastest. So that's, that's like the evidence who? of the entry level. So it would be Seattle, it would be San Jose, it would be uh, you know the major markets. That's a 20 major market survey, Chicago, New York, all of that. In every market, it's the entry level where price is appreciating most rapidly. Actually, the upper tier in a number of those metro, metro markets is now falling, or at least flat. Are there any markets, I'm thinking back to the housing crisis and some of the markets that really jumped out and just really just rolled over big time, you know, the, the Vegas's of the world, the Miami's, the Phoenix's, um, are we seeing any markets out there that it just look, boy, this is overheated? Um, that's going to be in some of the coastal places. I think the last time I was here, we talked a little bit about San Jose. And I think what you're seeing is in those markets, businesses are now starting to relocate because the the wage rates they can afford to pay to their employees will not cover the housing costs in those areas. So you've seen some jobs move from that area to Salt Lake or to Chicago even, or to Indianapolis, places like that. So you're seeing the migration of the jobs because the cost of housing is so, is so great. Thank you so much for being with us. Great to be here. It's always Thanks. a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Doug Duncan is Fannie Mae, Senior Vice President and Chief Economist, uh, talking about a really important issue, which is the housing market in the United States. It really hasn't accelerated in the past few years, and some people have pointed to weakness there as a sign of some sort of downturn, but now we're seeing signs of optimism as those benchmark rates go even lower. So uh, people are looking at this as more of an affordability issue. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. 
Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Right now, let's shift focus to oil, since that really has been front and center all week after the attacks on Saudi Arabian production. Joining us, we are so lucky to have Ellen Wald. Uh, She is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. She also is an Atlantic Council Global Energy Center non-resident senior fellow and transversal (laughs) consulting president. Uh, She's written books. She's a wonderful, wonderful contributor. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. So first of all, we're hearing this morning the news that Saudi Arabia expects to get 70% of its production up and running in short order. Do you buy it? I do. I do buy it. And here's here's why. First of all, they're a, Aramco is a company that has great resiliency uh, and built into its system. I know that the Abcake plant has a lot of specialized parts and people were talking about how long it's going to take to get those parts and repair it. But this is a company that loses millions of dollars for every hour that output is down. So I think we can expect that they have contingency plans, they have parts ready. Yes, full repairs are going to take time, but they will be able to get output back up by working around things, by increasing output from other fields. This is a company that has a great deal of spare capacity and by accessing storage. So I'm not surprised to hear at all that they expect for output to return. However, we are going to get a uh, update from the new Saudi oil minister, Prince uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman. And I would expect that he may deliver a more sobering account of the damage and the repairs. So, Ellen, I know the investigation's obviously very, very early stages. Is there any sense of how this happened? Don't they have defenses against this? Um, Seems like this was a pretty big attack. Yeah, and they're still finding... They're still finding out exactly what caused this. Was it drones? Was it cruise missiles? Was it a combination of this? And I do think that there are going to be questions that need to be answered. And security plans are going to be need to be made more clear, particularly as Aramco moves towards its IPO. People are going to want to know, are these facilities safe? And what plans do you have to defend them as opposed to what do you have in place to repair? I'm looking right now at uh, some CB news being reported by CBS uh, that John Tucker just shared with us uh, that seems to claim the U.S. has identified exact locations from Iran where the missiles stemmed from. And I'm just wondering what the implications are for tensions in the Middle East. I mean, we talk about that sort of as a, you know, escalation scenario. But doesn't this seem more likely than perhaps some people are letting on. So it's interesting because things were definitely escalating over the weekend and then had uh, the U.S. coming out and saying, we've identified this, the culprit as Iran. But you had Saudi Arabia actually taking a step back and saying, hey, we, we believe that the parts came from Iran, but we're not we're stopping short of identifying Iran as the exact culprit. And I think that that was a move to kind of try to bring in international intervention, say, let's let's put this in the UN's hands. And I think that's part that the reason for that is because MBS knows that getting into a direct confrontation with Iran is bad business for him. So it's interesting. The timing of this is amazing, given the pending IPO of Aramco. So What's the thinking out there? Was this coincidence or is this something, you know, maybe state sponsored? It seems just tremendously odd to me. 
The timing could not be ignored, and you're not the first person to come up with this this idea and to Rats wonder <laughs> to wonder whether there is some relationship between it. And in fact, we have heard reports that Aramco and Saudi officials are rethinking at least the timing of the IPO, which, according to reports, was supposed to be as soon as November. They wanted a list on the Saudi stock exchange, but look at what happened to the Saudi stock exchange during this attack. It tanked. It dropped. I think three percent on Sunday before they kind of lifted it up or, or helped helped uh, helped it help keep it from falling further. Imagine if one percent of Aramco shares had been listed on the Saudi stock exchange at the time of this attack. It, they would have been hard pressed to prevent the entire exchange from crashing. So it does seem like a prudent idea to perhaps rethink these plans and definitely rethink the timing. And how do they put this as a risk factor in their <laughs> prospectus? Well, the risk the risk factors for the prospectus section just got a lot larger. Um, Could they be subject to drone attacks <laughs> yes. by unknown attackers. <laughs> the thing is that those those of us who are familiar with Aramco understand that this was these were risks and have been familiar with a lot of the risks to various oil facilities. In fact, the U.S. Uh, State Department actually did an assessment in the late '90s of Aramco's vulnerabilities to terrorist attacks. Right. Of course, we didn't have drones back then. <laughs> But they concluded that because everything is very spread out, it would be very difficult for a coordinated attack to really right. take out oil All production. Right. Okay, well, it's a new risk for the IPO to the extent it wasn't there. Ellen Wall, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Atlanta Council Global Energy Center non-resident senior fellow and transversal consulting president on Aramco. Appreciate you coming in in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, very helpful on this news. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.